trauma really does impact people differently. So the first step is really understanding for any given individual, um, what is the, what's the symptom presentation? What are, what are the current difficulties? And after that, if it looks like PTSD is, is a primary concern, there are absolutely treatments um, that are really effective. And if we were going to convey probably one of the most important messages to your listeners, it would probably be, be this, that PTSD, absolutely there are treatments that are available and that work and that can help people improve their quality of life. I think that there has been an unfortunate um, myth sometimes that, that PTSD is, is chronic and that symptoms don't get better over time. And I think the three of us are here to really try to convey a message of hope that we do have treatments that are effective and that can absolutely be helpful. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast gives you the edge to live a more informed life. We discuss more than just St. Louis as we connect the Gateway City to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. An interesting conversation we're going to have with three guests this morning on post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. It's uh, an important topic that has... I don't want to say gained a lot of, uh, this, this sounds horrible the way I'm going to introduce this, gained notoriety, but it's gained mm. prominence is probably a better way to say it over the last uh, maybe 20 years. Mm-hmm. And I think back of uh, back to World War One. not that I'm old enough to do that, but uh, as I recall from watching things and reading uh, and understanding shell shock, mm-hmm. and even back to any, any war, like back in the Civil War, same kinds of things. Right. We have uh, Dr. Lauren Albinson. She is a psychologist with the PTSD clinic at the St. Louis VA. And prior to coming to that VA in 2016, she worked with Alaskan natives in remote Alaska. She has extensive knowledge working with patients with evidence-based practice in both individual and group settings. Dr. Megan Keyes is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in the assessment and evidence-based treatment of PTSD in adults. She's an adjunct faculty at the Brown School at Washington University and founder of Trauma Empowered Consulting which provides education and consultant services for professionals working with trauma survivors. And Dr. Julie Masnack is a licensed clinical psychologist. She has more than 15 years of clinical experience providing evidence-based psychotherapy for PTSD, including her current work through the Department of Veterans Affairs. She is also currently a senior lecturer at Washington University. Ladies, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. Thanks. Do we have all nice three of you on here. here? We do. We are excited to be here. Okay, great. Uh, you know, first of all, I guess my question, to, before we start, evidence-based psychotherapy. I read evidence-based treatment, evidence-based practice. What is evidence-based, just so people can understand exactly where you all are coming from? So that's evidence-based a good place to start. So um, the idea in, in evidence-based is that you are right. PTSD has gained a, a lot of prominence recently, and part of what's come along with that is that there's been research, including large-scale research studies, really trying to determine which types of therapy um, have the most data support and are most effective in helping people. And so when we talk about our evidence-based treatments, we're talking about those that have the most research support and um, that we believe to be most effective. 
Okay, good. Now let's let's go back and and trace some history of PTSD. Uh, where did this really all start? You know, I mentioned uh, shell shock, but how did how far back has there been a uh, historical analysis of this? And when did the terminology PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder, actually kind of come into to vogue? Well, that's a good question. And whenever you were talking about it, I was like, man, he is right on target. So. This concept, it dates actually back to Industrial Revolution times when we're building the Golden Gate Bridge and railways are coming up and there's disasters happening, you know, all the way back to there. And then as you talked about with World War One, as wars were happening, combat um, becoming more prominent, you have shell shock. It's also been known as war neuroses and battle fatigue. And it wasn't until after World War II, with that massive return of soldiers coming back, that we started to recognize it as something that needed a formal label or something that we knew we needed to start paying more attention to. And it wasn't until about the 80s when the field of psychology really put a label to it of post-traumatic stress, which as we can all tell, has constantly been developing and emerging, and we've been learning more about it as as the years go by. I want to kind of separate this out a little bit because I know there are some different kind of stressors that may bring that on, uh, some general stressors. Uh, versus some traumatic kinds of stressors, and also those associated with what I think most people would understand military kinds of stress versus those things that may happen in civilian realms. Can you kind of uh, talk about each one of those, the general versus the traumatic, and then we'll get into like the military versus civilian Mm -hmm. traumas? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That is a key piece to actually recognize. So whenever we talk about general stressors, that's something that anyone can experience really at any point in time of we get divorced, um, we lose a loved one, we're fired from a job, laid off with everything that's been happening, um, new medical diagnoses, bankruptcy, anything along those lines would be considered a general stressor. But what really distinguishes that general stressor from a trauma stressor is a sense of like actual or threatened death or actual or threatened amount of serious injury or sexual violation in some way. So it's that piece of it's going a little bit beyond just a stressor, but something that has put ourself, our life, or witnessing that same thing happening to somebody else. So how does that include civilians? Give us some examples of some civilian stressors in a general way. And and you did mention like divorce and uh, the death of someone. What would be a traumatic stressor? You know, let's get specific with that in this in the civilian realm because I, you know, abuse is one thing, but I think getting really specific with that is important for people to understand exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. So whenever we think about the civilian population, the biggest things that probably come to mind: I mean, we have car accidents that happen at any point in time, and I think natural disasters are one of those important things to touch base on. We've got, I mean, Hurricane Katrina comes to mind. 
the tornadoes that happened. I mean, I think of Joplin back in 2013, California, people that go through earthquakes and what that might mean for them. And then if you think of just like general emergency service people, healthcare professionals, I don't know if you want me to go into that amount of detail sure. or if you had more questions about the civilian side before I go off on a tangent, I'm sure I could catch myself in. No, I, I would I, I would go ahead and go ahead well. in, into that a little bit, and I know we'll hit with the pandemic stuff later because that's a whole other whole other uh, ball of wax. But yeah, please continue with that line. I was going to say, you know, in terms of additional examples, right? We can certainly think about uh, child abuse or physical or sexual assault. Um, and one of the things that I think is really important to note is that. Um, trauma exposure is, is actually relatively common. Um, you know, in fact, you know, if you look at the statistics, the idea is that most of the people we, we meet every day probably have experienced a trauma at some point in their lives. In general, Arnold, about research indicates that about 70% of U.S. adults will experience at least one traumatic stressor in their lifetime. So trauma exposure is not something that is necessarily uncommon. It's how you deal with it. That's the, that's the main exactly. thing. Yeah, and I think everybody, even if we've been exposed to it, it's all how we respond to it. It's, you know, myself and you, we could go through the same type of traumatic stressor, and we might have different reactions to that, and one might consider it traumatic and the other not. So it's definitely very individualized. Based on upbringing, uh, where you live, maybe socioeconomic status, et cetera, would, would all those play in, into part of that? Yeah, absolutely. I would say that's research that is still emerging, but there's been a fair amount conducted on what does increase individuals' risk of developing PTSD. And it's a wide range of factors, including, you know, history of previous trauma, any comorbid mental health issues, an individual's coping abilities and ability to deal with stress and support, and there are support available to them. So there's not an exact formula to be able to predict who may necessarily develop it. We do know that despite the majority of individuals being exposed to a traumatic stressor at some point in their lifetime, only about 8 to 12% end up with a diagnosis of PTSD. So within the United States, we've probably got about 8 million adults currently diagnosed with PTSD. And that probably ranges from a very severe case to a very mild case? Absolutely. There is definitely a range in the severity of the symptoms and the degree to which compare someone's functioning. I kind of want to continue this line of discussion a little bit as I think of neighborhoods that are in severely high crime areas where gunfire or drug trade is very prevalent and individuals who live within those communities suffer and worry about getting shot uh, as they sit in their house or as they lay in their bed. And we've, we've actually heard that in the St. Louis area and, and seen that happen. How prevalent does poverty and those kinds of situations affect, uh, really, I'm thinking of, of children as they then go to school and their education? Okay. No, you're right. Those are all risk factors that need to be considered. And part of what we know is that there tends to be a cumulative impact of trauma. Um, so the more trauma experience that one has, uh, the more likely they are to develop PTSD symptoms. So when we're talking about uh, chronic trauma exposure, that absolutely is a risk factor. So what are some reactions to this trauma exposure? What 
what would people see in other individuals or what would they identify within their own behavior that may indicate that they are reacting to trauma in a maybe in an unhealthy manner? Sure. Well, and I think what's important to note is that it really is common uh, to have a reaction after a trauma experience, right? So, you know, most often what we see is that very shortly after the trauma, um, people might report things like upsetting memories about what just happened, or they might feel on edge, or they may have trouble sleeping. Um, And those reactions are really common. What we generally see is that over time, maybe over the course of a few weeks, um, people will tend to experience those symptoms start to decrease, so they'll start to feel better. And so I think it's really important, as, um, as Dr. Keith pointed out, to highlight just like the resiliency of, of the human spirit, that trauma exposure is common and, and very often, you know, people experience symptoms in the short term and then are able to, to see those dissipate over time. But, but there are absolutely some times when those symptoms don't dissipate um, and they continue. Hmm. And so in response to your question, if, if, if people are wondering, like, you know, what should I be paying attention to or, or when should I maybe go talk to my doctor or reach out for assistance, I think there's a, a couple things that, to, to pay attention to. Um, one is, is just being aware of how long the symptoms are lasting. So symptoms that are lasting for more than a couple of months or something certainly to pay attention to. I also think it's important to pay attention if the symptoms are um, causing a lot of upset or are impacting the parts of, of life that are important. If it's impacting your ability to, to go to school, as you mentioned, or, or to go to work, or to connect with family and friends that are important. Those are certainly indicators um, that it may be helpful to, to reach out and talk with someone. If students have been identified or parents or individuals in a neighborhood and they they do go to a doctor, how do you approach uh, doing some kind of uh, evidence-based treatment with them? What what is a a process for that? That's that's a great question. So I think the first step um, is making sure that there's um, a good dialogue and a good assessment of what what the current difficulties are. So there was a a theme kind of in what Dr. Albinson and Dr. Keith had mentioned that the idea is that trauma really does impact people differently. So the first step is really understanding for any given individual, um, what's the symptom presentation? What are are the current difficulties? And after that, if it looks like PTSD is is a primary concern, there are absolutely treatments um, that are really effective. And if we were going to convey probably one of the most important messages to your listeners, it would probably be be this, that PTSD, absolutely there are treatments that are available and that work and that can help people improve their quality of life. I think that there has been an unfortunate um, myth sometimes uh, that that PTSD is, is chronic and that symptoms don't get better over time. And I think the three of us are here to really try to convey a message of hope that we do have treatments that are effective and that can absolutely be helpful. That's really a great statement to hear because how I have always understood PTSD, especially of those individuals who have been in the military and have been in wartime, is that this is kind of something you have. And it can it's treatable, mm-hmm. but it's but it's something that's an ongoing thing that always has to be dealt with. It, so that's kind of a, a myth then. 
Yes, Arnold, I would say that that probably is a myth. I think it's still fairly common, but the truth is what we've seen over the past few decades with a lot of the treatment outcome research is that there are several evidence-based time-limited therapies, most running between about 8 to 16 weeks, that are incredibly effective in targeting those PTSD symptoms and reducing them. And I think people should absolutely be hopeful in terms of realizing that if you are diagnosed with PTSD, there are solid treatments available that can really help you return to your kind of baseline level of functioning and improve your quality of life. This isn't meant to be a curveball question, but for those of you that deal with the VA, I guess looking from the outside in and knowing that there are thousands of uh, individuals who serve in the military and who are in uh, those kinds of combat zones, would it be beneficial and how, how would you do this? But would it be beneficial to have these kinds of therapies and, I guess, um, I don't want to say deprogramming or an exit interview as they leave the military or leave the war zone to identify uh, possible symptoms or individuals who may be pushing PTSD and then deal with it at that time rather than wait till they become civilians and have the issue crop up some other way? I think that is something that is a great thing to point out, and I think it's something that the military has honestly been trying to work on. So I'd spent some time at Fort Leonard Woods way back in the day, and that is what I heard a lot from active duty people as they were transitioning out of figuring this out. They're coming back from deployment, and you have this stigma of getting the mental health while you're in the military. And so I think that's something that would definitely be beneficial is recognizing in some type of debrief format of what did you guys just experience what do you feel like might be helpful for you as you transition and then make that, I guess, warm handoff into the VA system afterwards? Because I feel that there's a miscommunication sometimes from leaving the military to how do I get involved with the VA? What can the VA do to help me? So I think that's definitely something that we could probably improve upon and I think is probably being worked on more and more as time goes by. Yeah, it's a good point to bring up. And the other thing I would add to that is that the VA has uh, has really made incredible steps toward early screening and then early intervention because what we're trying to create is really a culture of recovery um, and, again, conveying that message of hope. Um, and to be clear, right, I mean, uh, certainly when we talk about significant traumas of any type, right, people will, will never forget those experiences. I mean, they're key experiences in their life. But the message of recovery and hope is really about how do we help create symptom relief so that those trauma experiences aren't taking away from quality of life in the here and now, so that they're not impacting things like work and school and relationships that are just so important. So I do think that um, there are exciting things happening in terms of uh, screening and early intervention and early access to the best psychotherapy care possible um, that is making a difference. And the only other thing I wanted to add was one thing just to be aware of with PTSD is at times, sometimes the symptoms won't necessarily onset until many months afterwards, sometimes many years. So although we certainly try to diagnose as accurately as possible when someone presents to us, there is a type of 
PTSD called delayed onset, where the symptoms may not actually show up until a while later. And I can give you an example of that. Like, one of the things we see a lot of times with a lot of Vietnam veterans is that while they were working and raising families, they were busy, they were occupied, but once they retired, once they got older and slowed down physically or started having a lot of medical issues, a lot of these upsetting and distressing memories from some of these experiences have very come back, have come back to them and started disrupting their lives and can result in PTSD. Do you think that's due to compartmentalization or just kind of, I'm shoving this down and I'm going to move on with my <laughs> life, and then when you have time to really think about things, uh, you know, 40 years later, it yeah. pops up? Well, Yeah, I think a big part of it is, you know, one of the things that we know for a lot of individuals with PTSD is they use avoidance as a coping mechanism, trying not to think about the memories, thoughts, and feelings, avoiding reminders of the trauma. And avoidance can also be involved in kind of keeping yourself very busy and very occupied. So I think that is part of what we see, that for many individuals, those experiences of distress were always there at some level, but they likely had outlets and coping mechanisms over the course of their lives while they were younger and quite busy that might have kept those things at bay a little bit more. And like I said, as individuals might slow down, medical issues might make them feel a bit more vulnerable. Um, That's where some of these previous traumas can sometimes slip, creep back up and have a little bit more of an effect. We're having a conversation with Dr. Lauren Albinson, Dr. Megan Keyes, and Dr. Julie Masnack about post-traumatic stress disorder, and they are all involved in an evidence-based therapy, and two of them actually work uh, through Washington University families and a support system. Hard now to find out, find any family that's normal. I, I don't think there is a normal family anymore. Uh, or, or if there ever was one, <laughs> you know, it's very possible that never existed. No, it never did. <laughs> uh, so uh, my, my question is, families as a support network for uh, whether it's a, a trauma and a, and a, that happens here locally or one that happens for a returning military veteran, what role do they play in helping, and do they kind of go through, like, my words, co-therapy, kind of like AA, you know, does that? Yeah, I think so. Um, so I think the biggest thing is, you're right, there's not enough attention that's ever been paid to the impact that trauma or stressors have on just the family unit as a whole. It's very much been a focus on individuals. But as we know that trying to change ourselves in the midst of a crazy environment around us, can often be a huge challenge. So one of the things I think in trauma treatment in general, and I know here in the VA, um, there's several of those evidence-based protocols that we had talked about that actually involve, well, the spouse or an important person in their life so that they have support along the way. So I guess if you think of it as like an AA of sorts, because they are actively involved with the patient in treatment. So I guess you could say homework that they'd be doing is homework that they do together. It's activities to get them involved in each other's lives, making sure that the partner's understanding of what are they going through. There's a shared knowledge of the symptoms that they're experiencing. And I think whenever you bring a partner into that, it probably helps outside of just that um, parental relationship if you bring kids in with that as well. If your parents are working well on things, then that means that there's probably a more cohesive family unit 
surrounding that. So I think that's something that we're definitely learning more about and recognizing the need to bring family members in as part of that. And I would add to that, Dr. Albinson, um, we know from the research that social support is just incredibly important, um, both for preventing PTSD as well as for helping individuals who have PTSD symptoms. And so, um, you know, the real encouragement is if, if you have someone in your life that's struggling with PTSD symptoms, I think any efforts to get information and, and to educate yourself can really be can really be helpful, um, as well as making sure that, you know, you are taking care of yourself and, and taking care of, like, the, the, the healthy social support system. So in terms of, of resources, if there are listeners who have uh, family or friends that, that they're concerned with PTSD symptoms, one of the resources we, we direct people to um, is the National Center for PTSD website. It's a website that has a, a remarkable amount of information. But in particular, there's a section that is really dedicated to um, understanding PTSD for family and friends. Um, there's a guide there that you could look at that has uh, information not only about symptoms but also about treatment options. There's also specific guides about how family members and friends can support someone who is going through trauma-focused therapy. There's even a PTSD family coach uh, that is an app that, that could be helpful. So I think really the message is about making sure that you seek information um, because that social support is just incredibly important. While there is evidence-based treatment, a couples therapy for individuals with PTSD, a lot of our leading evidence-based treatments that are focused on individual therapy for PTSD, like as a therapist, you can actually incorporate family to a degree in terms of helping really provide them some education about PTSD and the symptoms, kind of the purpose of the therapy, how and why it works, and how they can help support their partner or spouse as that individual is progressing individually therapy. So even in the context of our evidence-based individual therapies, partners or spouses can still play a significant role of support in that as well. It really seems like the, the more we go on in understanding this, the better we're getting at it, and we're realizing how much we have not done in the past, which should be evident, should be self-evident, that it's, it's a growing and, and a new, my words, it's, it's a new uh, treatment and a new understanding of what individuals have gone through. I want to mention the website that uh, the National Center for PTSD, it's ptsd.va.gov, ptsd.va.gov. I want to shift a little bit to the pandemic and has been a severe stressor for a lot of people, and it may be traumatic for some, on their mental health, upon their ability to uh, cope and uh, be resilient uh, in in the midst of this. How much have you seen the the pandemic cause uh, PTSD amongst uh, the general population, and even kind of uh, adding adding wounds to those who have been in the military and bringing these things back up? Well, I would say that to date, Arnold, most of the research that's been conducted on the mental health impact of the pandemic has primarily indicated that anxiety and depression have been the most common mental health changes. Um, for example, you know, the, the American Psychological Society has, Association has been doing an ongoing survey called Stress in America that measures the stressors on our nation. Their most recent 
results were just published online this past October. And in that survey of approximately 3,400 adults, close to 80% continue to experience significant distress associated with the pandemic. And 70% indicated their stress had increased since its onset. So when we think of the pandemic simply as a stressor, we definitely see that it's probably impacting the vast majority of individuals. When we look at the mental health effects, most of the studies are indicating that usually about 30% or so, one out of three individuals, are experiencing some level of mental health changes. When we talk about the potential for the pandemic to be traumatic, that's where we really get into the type of stressors that people are experiencing. So our common common general stressors that many may have experienced over the course of the pandemic can include those fears of infection, financial hardship, isolation, employment issues, or various losses. Any of those would be considered stressors and have the potential to impact your mental health. But when we think about potentially traumatic stressors, there definitely are some that could affect some people. For example, individuals who are infected and need to be intubated in ICU, individuals who lose a loved one and aren't able to be with those those loved ones in their final hours due to safety precautions, and then finally our frontline and essential workers who may experience increased risk of infection or are exposed to the extreme effects of COVID-19 due to the nature of those works, their work. Those are some of the individuals that could potentially be at increased risk of developing PTSD from these pandemics. We talked about identifying military transition from active duty to civilian life. What what is being done with those who are on the front line of COVID-19, those doctors and nurses and other kinds of hospital workers who are dealing with this? Because that's extremely stressful. To date, most of the studies that have looked at the mental health impact of the pandemic on our healthcare workers show that the most common symptoms people are reporting are depression, anxiety, and sleep disruption. The numbers are running that about one out of every, between one and two out of every five healthcare workers tend to report these types of symptoms. In terms of post-traumatic stress, there have been some emerging studies, most Um, international studies coming out of China and Europe that have found symptoms of post-traumatic stress among their healthcare workers and frontline workers. So I anticipate that's going to be information that continues to emerge as the pandemic progresses. The thing we have to remember about post-traumatic stress disorder is that often it can't be diagnosed until the traumatic stressor has ended. That's kind of the nature of the disorder. So for a lot of individuals who are still in the midst of it, it might be hard hard to determine just yet if they actually um, may end up developing symptoms of PTSD. To get treatment, I'm going to ask a question and then I want to kind of move to uh, some future direction of, of treatments. Who can actually treat PTSD? Who diagnoses it? And then who treats it? Because it's not something you go to like your right. your general counselor or you go to your internist. And uh, Because I think some people may think, you know, if you just give me some pills, mm-hmm. you know, we'll get into treatments. But, uh, you know, people there are like, you know, I don't want to get addicted to anything. Who actually is the best resource to treat PTSD? Well, I think in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder, while it's really important and helpful for general health care providers to be aware of the effects of trauma, 
um, working with a mental health provider, a clinical psychologist, a clinical social worker, somebody who is familiar with being able to assess and diagnose these types of disorders would probably benefit an individual the most if they suspect they, you know, if they've experienced trauma and suspect that they might have PTSD. In terms of the treatment itself, again, if you're interested in evidence-based treatments, which are the ones that are backed by science and shown to be most effective, in that case, you'd want to try to look for a provider who's able to provide that type of treatment. And I believe Dr. Masnick probably has some additional information she can share about those treatments. Right. And, and, you know, Arnold, you make a good point that I think sometimes when um, we think about treatment, our mind initially thinks about medication. But what we actually know from all of the research is that it is the therapy treatments that are really the first-line treatments um, and tend to be the most effective. And so just to echo what Dr. Keyes was saying, I think it really is important that if any of the listeners are identifying with, with PTSD symptoms, I mean, if they're experiencing things like like nightmares or feeling upset when they're exposed to reminders of what happened or finding that they want to avoid talking about it or, or want to avoid going places that, that feel unsafe. You know, if they've noticed that maybe the way they think about the world, maybe the way they feel has really shifted after what they've been through or feel anxious or on edge or having problems sleeping. If they're noticing these symptoms, um, really the best recommendation is, is to talk with a mental health professional And again, to hold that hope that there are uh, therapies that are really effective. We call them uh, trauma-focused therapies. And and what that simply means is that the nature of the therapy is really focused on the trauma experience and and the meaning of that trauma experience. And so um, most of these therapies uh, range anywhere from 8 to 16 sessions. Um, And they may involve things like uh, talking about the trauma experience itself, um, thinking about the, the meaning of the trauma memory or, or thinking about the ways in which that trauma has shifted, the way people um, think about things in, in the present. And I think something to highlight with that is it's always very individualized. So even though we have these evidence-based practices, it doesn't mean that we're going to fit you into one specific box but that we really sit down, any mental health care professional would really sit down and just identify what goals are you wanting to treat and making sure that we're working towards that and not just putting our own agenda and what we think would be most helpful. So we definitely try and make it very collaborative. That was a very important statement because I I think many people's experience with mm-hmm. uh, individuals in the mental health realm right. is is that I'm, I'm just kind of fitting into your box and, right. <laughs> and you're giving me uh, what you know and um, that that doesn't work for everybody. No. Well, Absolutely. That makes it a little bit difficult for them to want to reach out and be a part of it because they feel like we have an agenda and that's what we're trying to push and mm-hmm. hopefully we can convey that that is not our goal as we're trying to work with folks. The purpose of this and what spurred this conversation with the three of you was uh, I read articles and in the news and many times individuals who have done some things, it's been identified that they've had PTSD or have PTSD or are going through some kind of trauma. And I think it's important for the general public, all those listeners out in listener land, to, to understand the significance of post-traumatic stress disorder, that it's not just something that 
uh, our troops bring home with them, and then all of a sudden it rears its ugly head 40 years later. But this is an ongoing kind of thing within our community. And to bring our discussion to a conclusion and and give people some hope, what's some future direction for research? And can you provide some resources for us that uh, individuals can link up with? Yes, certainly, Arnold. So a growing area of research with regards to PTSD treatment is how do we make these evidence-based treatments more readily available? So the role of telehealth, you know, the use of that clinical video conferencing technology to increase accessibility was already emerging prior to COVID-19, but since the pandemic has certainly highlighted the need for better access to mental health care, I think that we can definitely continue to see more research in this area. I think another thing to keep in mind is that one of the big challenges in this field is the dissemination of these best practices. How do we train and support clinicians in the community to effectively provide these therapies to their clients? And again, as the pandemic has really shined a light on the impact of stress on mental health, I think we can see increased research efforts on how to effectively and efficiently provide education training to providers about the impact of stress and various treatment options for PTSD. In terms of resources, I just wanted to highlight a few different ones. I want to give you a few trauma and PTSD resources, as well as a couple general mental health and a training opportunity for any clinicians who work with trauma survivors. So I want to circle back to that National Center for PTSD website just to help make people aware of the fact that This website does offer a wide range of educational resources for survivors, family members, and mental health providers working with survivors. Those resources include informational handouts, videos, and mobile apps. There's two apps that I'd really like to highlight for the purpose of our discussion today that were developed by the National Center for PTSD, and that is the PTSD Coach and the COVID Coach. So both of these are available in English and Spanish. PTSD Coach provides a wide range of research-based tools for monitoring and managing symptoms associated with trauma, and it provides a lot of education about PTSD treatment. COVID Coach provides a range of techniques for managing a range of issues associated with pandemic stress, such as sleep, anger, sadness, and interpersonal difficulties. Two additional trauma resources that provide a wide range of educational resources for survivors and family members as well are the International Society of Traumatic Stress Studies and the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. Those are two um, well-recognized organizations that have a good range of resources available to the general public. In terms of our mental health resources, since we were touching on the idea of potentially seeking professional assistance, Psychology Today offers a really user-friendly online resource called Find a Therapist. It allows you to search a range of mental health providers based on your location. And finally, we always want to ensure people have access to a crisis line if needed. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255, is a 24-7 confidential resource for individuals in crisis or with a loved one in crisis. And their website has a wide range of resources as well.
So I would say those are kind of the key resources we wanted to share for individuals and families. And then finally, I just wanted to highlight a training opportunity for any master's level mental health clinicians working with trauma survivors. The Brown School at Washington University is offering a post-master certificate program in the evidence-based assessment and treatment of PTSD in adults this coming fall. The program includes five full days of instruction and 10 weeks of ongoing consultation via Zoom. Those applications are currently being accepted and available online. Wow. That's great information. <laughs> it's like, did you get that 800 number down? I, I did. And okay. We've actually had a show on suicide uh, and this, the same the same group. That's, that's uh, an important, uh, the crisis lifeline. Mm-hmm. I had a, had a question. The PTSD coach and the yeah. COVID coach, those are apps. Is that correct? Correct. They are mobile apps. They are free, and they are designed to be used used on both um, iOS and Android platforms. Okay, so some really good information, wow. folks. And what we will do is we will post that okay. uh, along with this episode, and uh, you can you can find us on most any podcast platform, uh, including Apple. So we'll, right. we'll including Apple. You know, <laughs> we'll go with that right. one. So um, they're kind of new. Some some closing thoughts, ladies. Uh, that if you really had um, you know forty five seconds to give a spiel to people about um, uh, PTSD, or what mm-hmm. would you really want them to take away from this conversation? And we've got more than forty five seconds. I yeah. was just, since there's three of you, I was. <laughs> well, that that may give each of us then a chance to say a bit, but but um, I do appreciate you you creating time and space and just bringing attention to this very important issue. And I think you are right; it's something that uh, impacts our community. And so, if, if I had to say a take home message, it would be that that everyone with PTSD, right, whether we're talking about veterans or civilians. Um, whether we're talking about people that might have experienced a, a physical or a sexual assault, an accident, a natural disaster, childhood trauma, um, really needs to know that, that treatments do work and that they can lead to a, a better quality of life. Uh, so the take-home message is, is really one of hope that um, treatment can be helpful. And I would say, given we've talked so much about stressors and traumatic stress and pandemic stress, I just want to really highlight for individuals, please remember that the most common response to trauma, adversity, and stress is resilience and recovery. Though most people do have negative reactions to these stressors, they typically are time-limited. The vast majority of individuals do recover on their own, and resilience plays a role in this. And if you do end up developing PTSD or depression or anxiety as a result of traumatic experiences, please remember that there's every reason to be hopeful because there are very solid evidence-based treatments available to treat all three of those types of issues. And with them doing such a great job of wrapping up on a lot of that, I would just make sure to highlight that just because you've experienced some type of trauma or some stressor, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of these symptoms are going to present themselves or that treatment even is going to be warranted. And so that's just circling back to finding a healthcare professional, mental healthcare professional that you can touch base with and talk more about to see what might be needed or not. Dr. Lauren Albinson, Dr. Megan Keyes, Dr. Julie Masnack. Thank you for coming on St. Louis in Tune to talk about this very, very important topic. And 
I am greatly appreciative of uh, your insights, your experience with this, and uh, look forward to some future conversations with us. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider letting us know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcast. You could even write a review. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker. 